Hello, this is Andy Lavender and I'm with Kevin Cunningham who's the Executive Artistic Director of the Three-Legged Dog Media and Theatre Group uh, which also runs the 3LD Art and Technology Centre. Can I ask first of all, what does digital culture mean to you? Well, we think of digital technology as a universal translator between modes of expression and ways of working. And one of the most interesting um, aspects of digital technology, something that a lot of people don't think about, is its ability to integrate different activities across disciplines. Do you see this as a stable environment? Do you see it as one that's to do with continual innovation or also perhaps um, continual redundancies of older devices and it's I mean it's incredibly innovative, right? I mean things are constantly changing, but what remains the same is code, right? So if if as artists, if we are familiar with and comfortable with code, we can adapt uh, automatically to the changing platforms and shifting modalities that we we run into uh, driven by the industry. Generally speaking, um, the the larger uh, commercial entities, you know, Google and Microsoft and Apple um, tend to be sort of reductive in their process uh, to technology and create uh, ultimately bottlenecks and difficulties for people who want to use technology creatively. So you always have to hack or find a way to um, to marry things together. You know that's that's kind of how we have to uh, approach things to make integrated, interactive media environments and immersive environments. How much do you think digital culture depends upon this really close work with technology? Do you, do you think it all has also led to different ways of producing artworks or different modes of creativity? Yes, yes. There, there's a really huge uh, shift going on right now over the last 15 years especially. Here at 3LD we don't look at 19th century genre categories anymore. We're really not interested in theater or opera or dance or any of those categories. We're more interested in the way that technology is changing the way artists make art and the way audiences experience art. So without trying, without pushing an agenda or anything like that, over the last, since 2007, we have a 200-seat riser system in Studio A that's only been brought out twice by artistic organizations. It's been brought out repeatedly by commercial renters. But the artists are, are, are given time in the space with about $3 million worth of equipment. And what they are tending to do is look at ways that the audience can be incorporated inside the work. And digital technology is critical to that. So there's, you know, there are all kinds of innovations like that that are happening. When you put technology into the hands of artists and don't lock them out from using it, you know, new things happen that you don't expect, that the artists don't expect either. And then do you think the other side of this, something that we think we've discovered in putting this special issue together, is that we see artists interested in analogue systems and technologies now, so we're nearly a generation after the start of Web2, and people now are looking back to Walkman-style encounters and using vinyl and Mm -hmm. thinking about karaoke, which is a sort of older pre-digital mode. Yes. Do, do you see that too? The, oh, yeah, yeah. Like one, one, of, yeah. Backwards. one of the technologies that we're most known for is a technology called eyeliner. Uh, it, it's a 3D projection technology that allows us to project holographic images 
at large scale. In, in Shanghai, we landed a full-size jet hologram on stage, for example. That technology is a Victorian stage trick called Pepper's Ghost. Yeah. It's been around for a long time. Yeah. You know? So we don't really make a distinction between a hammer and a computer. They're tools. Digital technology we think of as a natural extension or a amplification prosthetic for the human brain, right? It's a way to expand or extend the, cap the capability and capacity of your of your nervous system. And we also, we do a lot of training, a professional training for artists and technology. And one of the focuses of our training is always to teach artists to be skeptical about the use of technology on stage. It's you know easy to sort of lean on, on spectacle and sort of the wowie-powie stuff that technology can do. But we always encourage the artists, especially in our training programs and also in our curatorial practice, to make sure that the technology is integral to the work in some way. Yeah. And then you mentioned extending the nervous system, so the presence of the technology is one thing, but I think one of the slightly maybe counterintuitive aspects of working with the digital is that the body becomes suddenly still so much in play. Yes, so we yeah, see lots yeah. of embodied practice and people... Right featuring their bodies and the bodies of audiences and spectators yes. in very present ways. Exactly. Do you think yeah. that's true? I do think that's true. I think it's, pre it's predominant in the, in the field and it's increasing. The idea that the human body and the actual, an actual physical presence is a critical element. But uh, that's been a pretty dominant theme in the development of interactive technology. The, one of the software systems that we use is Adora was developed by a dance company specifically to help bodies interact intuitively with technology, right? And you talked about this as being a field of innovation. Can you give us a sense of which companies specifically, which artists, um, just as a set of examples, do you see innovating, and what kind of innovations are we now looking at? Sure. What we do here is we, we the space is uh, run by a creative company. We create our own work in here for two to six months out of the year. We take one of the other three studios. And, uh, and then the rest of the year we curate in projects that are pushing boundaries or, or that are artists that are on the edge of something, right? Usually it's an artistic threshold that they're about to reach that also is related to their stability as an organization or as an artist. So we give them two to six months um, in the space with 24-7 access to the space and equipment. We basically just give them a key. And the, the rule is if you if you decide to bring in a half ton of fish and explode them in the space, you have to clean up after yourself. Some of the examples of, of recent works, uh, aside from three-legged dogs' work and builders' work that, that are interesting in this area are uh, the project Wang Yi and Kuka, which is a, a, a Taiwanese artist named Wang Yi, who talked the Kuka Corporation, the robot manufacturers, into letting him have a robot to play with. And he spent four months in Studio B teaching this robot how to dance and created a full evening pas de deux, basically, for human and a robot. It's been really interesting and that, that we filmed it in 3D. We do a lot of our projects we develop with the artist as cross-platform development. So there's a live performance that also ends up as a film. Some of these films have ended up at Sundance and, and American Film Institute. And, and then we also look at, the, look at the projects for other platforms. We're working on VR platforms, AR platforms, and did various web manifestations of the work. Right? Another one of my favorite examples is Kurt Henschlager's Z, where we built a 50 by 25 foot 
uh, airtight room in Studio A, filled it with small with fog so that you could only see like a quarter of an inch in front of your face, and then these giant 2,000 watt strobes start pulsing and you begin to hallucinate wildly. I can't show you documentation of that <laughs> because it all happens in your head. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then we're also working with artists who are working with the emotive system, the, the EEG control yeah, system yeah. Uh, by Tunley and just did a, a, a piece that explores um, synchrony and empathy in Studio C where you can actually work with another person and using visualizations driven by the EEG, synchronize your, your brain patterns. And then in terms of programming the activities here, it's a mixed model that involves some production of uh, projects that people are bringing yes. you, but then also some quite extensive incubation. Yeah, it's just like the technology, right? It's just like our approach to technology. Basically, we say the art is the boss. So the project in its nature defines this, the business structure or the production model or its state as either like a workshop kind of thing or a full production. The goal in all cases is to provide the artist with the time and the resources that they need to complete the work. Right. A lot of these projects um, actually do a three or four step residency. Yeah. It's a, a way to introduce artists to us and us to them and also a way to develop work in a responsible way. It's really hard. I mean, we practice what I call cliff diving here all the time. If we waited for all the funding to be in place for any given project, we would never do anything. So we're constantly having to take a huge risk. Some of these projects have $700,000 budgets, you know, and, and higher sometimes. And how does the money work? Where, are you funded or do you have a regular income stream? What's the we don't have, situation? we don't have, uh, we have, uh, some philanthropic support from the Andrew Mellon Foundation and from American Express. Recently in the United States, most of the major foundations have stopped funding culture directly. The government hasn't funded culture forever, and under the new administration, it's very likely that they will be absolutely hostile towards culture rather than funding it. So, so do you have to fundraise for each project on a project-by-project project basis? We do. but. The other thing we do is we do these large-scale commission projects for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Lady Gaga. We just finished doing a huge installation for Vogue China that was really uh, well-received. And all summer long, our, our installation with uh, Rem Koolhaas' group OMA was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, one of their highest-attended uh, exhibitions ever. Those projects bring in money. Rather than just taking the profits, we put those profits back into the nonprofit mission. When there's a big project, for example, we helped Michael Kors launch his brand in China um, between 2012 and 2014, which was about a $5.8 million project. That funded 12 full productions and six films. And Michael uh, donated the $1.1 million worth of equipment from the, from the production to us after it was over. So that makes the model even more hybrid. There's a commercial media design mm -hmm. activity that is helping to nourish and support a wider array of experimental practice. Yes, I mean the company has a day job. That's what it amounts to. You know, we the work we do, however, isn't commercial work, right? We don't accept every job that comes across the transom. We actually are developing trying to develop relationships with clients. Michael, uh, for example, Michael Kors 
came to us asking us not to help him launch his brand, but to introduce him as a person to China. And the opportunity was to build an immersive environment that included a screen that was one of the largest video projection screens ever built, 15,000 square feet of, uh, of image at about five times the resolution of IMAX uh, films, 88 million pixels. And we did that with $350 software and Macintosh computers, you know, so, and it was more reliable than a commercial media server would have been. So, you know, that it gave us an opportunity not only to, so what we do a lot of times, for example, with that project is we, we try to use tools that your everyday average Joe artist can afford, even on the big uh, hefty commercial projects. That produces uh, for us a methodology that we can share with other artists that can help them, for example, work at very large scale, affordably. Right? And then on the on the on the other side, uh, on the business side of things, it means that because we use affordable technology and affordable methods, our profit margin is higher, and more money can come back into the nonprofit, so it creates a virtuous cycle. We don't have really the choice in the current system to be strategic. We have to be reactive. We have to be tactical, mostly. Is there anything else I should have asked you or that you'd like to say before we close? I think uh, here in the States especially, we're at a really difficult moment for the arts. And one of the things that's alarming to me is uh, about, I guess it was about nine or ten months ago, a little uh, group of people from the EU came over to New York. And when we asked them what they were doing, they said they were exploring the American model of cultural production, right? which is absolutely frightening and appalling idea that you would want to explore the American cultural production model <laughs> as, you know, a model. <laughs> which is about to become more vexed. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, because in fact there is no model here. There is no support system, and there is no value given to culture, really. A lot of what we're doing is uh, being driven by direct threats to our survival on a constant basis. You know, And it's really funny because we have this beautiful white tube hallway and all this equipment and everything, so people think there's just money flowing. But, but in fact, all of these resources and everything have been provided by our artists and the people who work with us in a cooperative way putting in blood, sweat, and tears and making it happen by hook or by crook, you know. And, and I think technology is part of the answer to that, but the other thing to just say is that technology can be a hindrance also if you, if you misuse it. And if you embrace it and relax into it and let it be what it is, which is just another tool, an extension of your body, it can be helpful, it can help you. Thank you very much. Sure, sure.